Before we continue with our worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, again, we thank you for the privilege together. We thank you for your mercy and grace that you've extended to us in Christ. We come this morning to uh, confess our sin before you. We are frail, we are weak, and we are prone to wander. We uh, acknowledge your word is clear that as we are hidden in Christ, you're a new creature is profoundly changed and transformed. Our lives are profoundly different, marked, set apart, undeniably transformed. We still struggle with sin, the side of our eternal hope and glory settled in heaven that we long for one day. And we know that our sin uh, is still an affront to you and it separates us in, in uh, it, it lessens our intimacy with you. So we come as you teach us to confess, to lay them before you uh, for strength, to walk in righteousness, for hearts that are longing to know you, for hearts that corporately hate our sin, longing uh, to be um, to be in righteousness, walking in righteousness and to have greater fellowship and intimacy with you. So we confess before you our great need for you, our great love for you, and our hatred of our sin uh, as we long to continue to be purified and strengthened, uh, quickened uh, to your worth and overwhelmed by um, your holiness, your character, your being, your majesty, and equipped and um, deliberate about our obedience and of uh, your calling upon our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue in the book of Acts and Acts chapter 22. And the title of this morning's message is Paul the Apologist, part two. And we'll be looking at verses 16 through 30. So if you'll join me there in Acts chapter 22 beginning in verse 16, and we'll read through the text together, get a little context here for what's going on from verse 16 to the end of the chapter. And again, uh, this we pick up with uh, Paul giving his testimony here. So now he's retelling his encounter um, there with Ananias at Damascus, okay? So Ananias is speaking to him there in, in verse 16. So this is Ananias speaking. He says, why do you delay? Speaking to Paul. Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this, uh, uh, excuse me, they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, uh, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him this way. But then they uh, but when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The commander answered, I uh, uh, acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money, Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. 
But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. So there we have the context here of really Paul's um, last telling of his testimony there again before the whole crowd that's gathered, all the the, the Jewish crowd that was uh, moments earlier willing to rip him limb from limb. Now, if you remember, um, the centurion initially came with uh, with the forces and uh, kind of quelched the, the the mob violence, the the the. Um, the eruption that had broken out over Paul being wrongly accused, remember, wrongly accused of having a Gentile in the temple, um, probably stirred up by those Jewish leaders from um, that, that had tracked him all the way, all throughout the Mediterranean and pursued him, looking to kill him. And so probably that, that con, uh, contingency that was from Ephesus particularly, uh, could have recognized him immediately. He spent a lot of time there, and they really sought him out in that part of the world. And so that group is there. It's Pentecost. They're all gathered there. He's surrounded by his enemies, if you will. And so now they found him in the temple. They wrongly accuse him of having a Gentile in the temple with him. And then the crowd is stirred up, and so they try to lay hands on Paul to kill him. The Romans have to intervene at that moment just, at that moment, just to squelch the, the mob violence. And so they're bringing, uh, literally bringing Paul in chains back up the stairs to Fort Antonio. It sits right atop Jerusalem. And so he asked the commander there, can he speak? He asked in, in the Greek language, the commander obliged, saying that this is obviously a learned man, so let's give him an opportunity here. And then he begins to speak in Aramaic to the crowd, which was the lingua franca of the day there in Jerusalem. And so he's giving, he's in the midst of giving his testimony, telling what has transpired, how he has encountered the Lord and the conversation he has had with the Lord on the Damascus road. And so we pick up here in verse really 16, we'll pick up as he continues on that, um, that testimony. And we're striving this morning, as we're looking at this in context, we're striving the morning, this morning to allow Paul and his testimony to inform us as we go forth and testify of what Christ has done in our life, as we give our testimony, as we declare the gospel. So in, form, in terms of application here, we're really wanting that to be the driving point for us as we look at Paul's uh, sharing of his testimony. As we can, uh, we overlay our command by God, our obedience to God, specifically in carrying the gospel and communicating the gospels in our context and in our lives and the way that God has called us here in our unique context to do the very same thing that Paul has called, excuse me, that God has called Paul to do in every other Christian, in every context, in every generation around the world. We're called, we're commanded to go forth and carry the gospel. So we're going to look at Paul here in context with that, that application overlaying what we see here as we seek to learn from Paul and be uh, um, stirred by the scripture here and reminded and encouraged and quickened and convicted to go forth and do likewise, okay? So the circumstances of Paul's ministry have changed. Now, from this point on, he's going to be in prison. The rest of his ministry will be that of a man who is in prison. He was free to roam the Mediterranean for three separate missionary journeys, carrying the gospel of the Gentiles uh, to the Gentiles. And now, of course, he has um, had numerous um circumstances that change on him there as a free man. He's uh, been imprisoned briefly uh, various times, and he has been beaten. He has uh, been battered uh, from pillar to post through these three missionary journeys. But he's done that by and large as a free man. Now, till we see Paul's death, we're going to see him minister as one who is imprisoned from this point forward. Okay, so the context changes. But what I want you to know about Paul right up front, all the the context, the circumstances have changed drastically for Paul here. The mindset remains exactly the same. Our context, 
likewise may change in life. Uh, as time goes on, if you get to be my age, they change quite, they change quite a bit. Uh, if, um, if, if, as you grow and, you, and we grow and mature and we age, our context change, our circumstances change. But as Christians, the mindset should never change. We have been given a commission and we are to go forth and carry the gospel. And Paul never allows the different circumstances that are brought upon him, that are thrust upon him to change the mindset of what he is called to do. Do not let your circumstances consume you and alter your mindset of what God has put you here to do. He's put you here to go forth and carry the gospel light into the world. And you do that in your context that he's given. And know this, every context that comes our way, that changes, and they do. They change, and they affect us differently, but they come to us the same way from the sovereign hand of God. God has sovereignly changed your context. If they change again from from this point forward, it will be that God has changed them. So our contexts are given by God. Remember that. And so the mindset stays the same. And Paul's a great, great example here. He never changes the mindset, even though the context changed drastically. He's prepared to minister the gospel in every situation. That should be a prayer for us. And if you say, man, I'm so far from that, and I feel weak, and I feel frail, well, you're not alone. We're all in this together, but nothing changes for us. Our God has called us to this. And our God will equip us for this. And so we pray to him until it is true in our lives that we're prepared to minister the gospel in every situation. So again, what we see here, what I want you to pick up on here in these verses too, is Paul's unwavering love for the unbeliever. He's concerned for the lost. Certainly he has a mandate from God. Certainly that is prominent and foremost in his life, and it should be in ours as well. God has mandated uh, uh, his, uh, his calling upon our lives as his followers to go forth and carry the gospel. But with that, with that change that God has brought in our lives, that transformation that God has brought upon our lives, if you're here as a genuine believer, you are radically transformed. Your life is completely different. There is an obvious change in your life. That is what happens when one is born again from above. And in that is this reality of our love for the lost. That is, that's, the, the onus is on us there, though, to nurture that. Oh, how the enemy will fight against us to squelch it. Oh, how circumstances of life will kind of cause us to put it away and kind of shelve it. It's something we must nurture and be adamant about, be working on as followers of Christ, that real genuine love and brokenness for the lost. And Paul always carried it forth. We see it just flow out of his life. And you're going to see it in the circumstances here, how he responds to the situation, how he responds to the people around him, and particularly how he responds to the Jewish people who were just prior trying to rip him from limb to limb. His heart is full of love for his Jewish brethren, those who were connected to him in a, a, um, a cultural setting, in an ethnic setting. Now, we're to have love for all people, and certainly we see that in Paul as he is the uh, uh, um, apostle of Christ to the Gentiles. But he never lost his love for the Jewish people who were his his brethren, his kindred um, in the flesh, if you will. So I want you to notice that. I want you to note that in, in the language here, uh, we see here Paul's love, his love and concern that flows from his testimony. Now, again, genuine love is something for the loss is something that we just pray for. Pray that God will continue to grow that and nurture that in our hearts. It's essential to uh, what we do, what we're called to do, and who we are as Christians, a love for the lost. So we have the context here, uh, and we have Paul continuing to to give his testimony in, in this setting. And again, he's standing before those who just prior were trying to kill him. And so this is a very difficult situation for Paul, to say the least. 
But know this, God brings us into difficult situations. He does that in our lives as well. Now, we might not be able to, to relate directly with Paul here. This is pretty extreme. Uh, that, that's true. But nonetheless, it's a difficult situation. We must acknowledge and recognize in our lives when we have difficult situations that come to us. Again, they come to us through the sovereign hand of God. And he places different, uh, excuse me, difficult situations into our lives for a purpose. Now, there may be a multiplicity of purposes in it, but they are no less than this. To strengthen our faith and to sharpen our witness. There may be other reasons for God, for the difficult situations that God brings into our lives. And, and, and I pray that we will, we will learn them and grow from them in the fullest. But always know this. They're always for the purpose of strengthening your faith and sharpening your witness, always. So just mark it down. Accept all situations as being from God for your good and his glory. If you can kind of nail down that sort of foundation, your circumstances will not dictate to you. The glory and majesty of God will dictate to you in all circumstances. And it's very important that we have that thing flipped the right way. So now just to track with me, Paul began his testimony there in in verses one through five. And he was seeking to relate to them. So he was trying to relate to to the Jewish mob there. And so he was trying to to remind them that, hey, I was just like you. I understand where you're coming from. And to some degree, uh, if at all possible, we always want to try to do that, to relate to the person or the people with whom we're sharing. He continued in verses uh, uh, six through 16. By testifying of his conversion, there his experience with the risen Lord, Jesus the Nazarene. And so he gives a, a tremendous there, a, a, just, just by way of reminder, a tremendous apology that confirms that Jesus did raise from the grave, right? He rose from the grave because he speaks to the risen Savior. So don't forget there that uh, Paul actually preaches the resurrection right here. But he speaks of what has happened to him personally, and he keeps it focused on the Lord. Again, another important thing for us. It's not necessarily our experience, although that's real, but it's what the Lord has done in our lives, the work of the Lord. And he's very good. Paul's uh, telling of his retelling of his experience there at the Damascus Road and what the risen Savior had done in his life is uh, central to how he communicates this, and he'll continue on as we pick up in verses 16 through 30. So don't miss that Paul continues to speak about the reality of what the Lord has done, more so than anything that he's experienced or how that it's necessarily affected him, but what the Lord has done. He leaves it there, leaving the work of the Lord to be the thing that people must deal with, not necessarily how it's affecting him emotionally. It's important for us as well. So center your testimony on the divine work of God in your life. Always center it there. Point them to God's work, what he has done in your life. Make them consider God's work, not your experience or feelings. Although those matters, I'm not saying that you just try forcefully to tuck them away, but center it on the work of God. Have your testimony center on God as judge and gracious Savior. Went into God's sovereign work among humanity. Now, that brings us to God, or excuse me, to Paul's testimony there in verses 16 through 22. So we're, we're continuing with it. We're picking up kind of uh, as where we left off uh, on last time that I was here in this text. And so Paul's going to continue his testimony here in verses 16 to 22. So look there with me and let's kind of pick it up again and gather Paul's rhythm here. So in verse 16, again, this is Ananias telling him that this is when uh, the Lord has told him to go to meet with Ananias. Ananias is going to be there waiting for him. And Ananias is going to instruct him what to do. And so in verse 16, Ananias is saying to Paul, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, we come kind of to a, a doctrinal issue right here in the first uh, verse here. Uh, of the text we're working this morning. So let me just take a moment to try to address that because this language here, this verse has been used by some people 
to uh, sort of as a proof text to sort of support uh, baptismal regeneration. And it's the water that actually saves. So when one is baptized in the water, when one is dunked into the water, that is when salvation happens. Uh, and, and they'll come to this particular verse, and it's just the, the structure of the verse kind of gives itself to uh, um, wondering what's being said here in the English. But um, let's look at that and see here when it says, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now, that's been taken to uh, mean by some that once you are dunked in water, that then you are saved. And it's the water that saved us. Water saved. No. So let's let's get that as a resounding uh, congregational no. Water does not save. What's being said here? Well, in short, baptism is an outward symbol of an internal change. And actually, if you'll just follow through to the end of the sentence there, we see what's going on. To wash away your sins, how? By calling on his name. So what we have here in context is really after all this unique, dramatic uh, uh, speaking with the risen Savior in this very extreme way where Christ meets him on the Damascus road, um, now sends him to Ananias, and here's really where we see Paul repent. Here's where we see his repentance and faith. This is where we see him repent and call upon the name of the Lord in faith. And as a result of that, Ananias is saying, go forth and be baptized. How is he saved here? What is happening? What has he been instructed to do? Get to Ananias, and here's what Ananias says to him. Call upon the name of the Lord, and what? You will be saved. This is exactly what Paul has done. And Ananias follows that up again and be baptized. Picture that. Make that public. So there's the necessary response. God is, is God sovereign in salvation? Yes, he is. God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Repentance and faith are gifts from God. True salvation, though, always flows from a genuine response. And what we see right here in this text is Ananias calling upon Paul to repent and believe and Paul repenting and believing on Christ. And then Ananias says, and go be baptized. That's the language we find right here. There's always a response. And we see Paul's response to God's saving faith. That's the genuineness of Paul's Salvation that's granted as a gift from God comes out in his genuine response here. So all true salvation flows from a genuine response of faith in Christ alone by sinners who are saved by grace. And that's what we're looking at here in verse 16. So again, what about the be baptized? Well, if it were, let's just say hypothetically, if we're in conversation sake with someone that says, hey, look, man, uh, right there, you can just see in verse 16, it's saying for him to be baptized. And really, it looks like um, wash away your sins. Well, isn't the water that's doing that? Well, let's ask this question. Did Paul preach salvation by uh, um, being baptized in water? Baptismal regeneration? Never. Did he preach that? No, he did not. Let's, so there, there may be a better nutshell. To me, I, I ran right to Romans 10, 9 and 10. Did y'all think that? That's kind of where I go for Paul's nutshell of the gospel. Uh, if you can think of one that maybe even is more con, uh, con, precise and concise, let me know. But just listen to, to Romans uh, 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. There it is. You will be saved. Anything about water? Baptism? No. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So what does Paul do to be saved? What does he do? He calls upon the name of the Lord. You see that there in verse 16? Wash away your sins, calling upon his name. He calls upon the name of the Lord. Romans 10, 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the, word, uh, of the Lord, what? 
will be saved. So why baptism? Well, again, baptism is a public testimony. And Ananias is saying, call upon the name of the Lord and follow that up with baptism as an outward symbol of an internal reality, the internal reality of God's saving grace in your life. Since you have been saved, make it public. Now, let's just think together again. If we, if we go to 1 Corinthians, the church there in Corinth, when Paul's ministering there, did they have some issues in Corinth? They had some issues, didn't they? One of the issues, one of several, was this this, uh, uh, problem of factions within the church, right? They were divided. And they were kind of, uh, they were split. They they, they kind of sectioned themselves off in little categories. Remember the language? Some say, well, you know, I'm kind of a a disciple of of Paul. No, 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 no. Well, that's not good enough. I'm a disciple of Apollos. No, no, no. I'm a a disciple of Peter. And others would come up and say, well, we're holier than all of y'all because we're disciples of Christ himself. And so they had kind of, they were, it was this divided aspect within the church and, and just an unhealthy reality of, of kind of trying to set yourself up as a little more righteous than someone else because of who you had identified with in terms of what particular teacher or Christian leader that you'd identified yourself with. And they even took baptism to say, well, if Paulos was the one that baptized me, I'm certainly more spiritually mature and marked off and holier than thou than you because I was baptized by Apollos rather than Paul. And so they were marking themselves off by who they were following specifically, not to, not to make any note of the teachers. The teachers were teaching the same thing. They're just trying, they're just driving wedges between each other with trying to set themselves up as a special disciples of a particular teacher. The teachers are all teaching them all the same thing. But it's the divisive nature of it, right? And so they were even using baptism to say, uh, well, since I was baptized by Peter, I'm just a little better off than you. Because you were not baptized by Peter. And in that context, do you remember what Paul said to that? Do you remember? Paul said, you know, as best that I can remember, I only baptized about two guys. And I am thankful that I didn't baptize anybody else. Because you're making baptism into be something that's not intended to be. Now, if baptism regeneration actually was the reality concerning salvation, wouldn't Paul said, oh, that I could have baptized 2,000? You never hear that. Because that's not what Paul believed. And it's not what's taught in Scripture. So we hit that up front. So let's just nail that one and knock that one out of the park right away and move on. That's not what's being said here. And it's certainly not what Paul believed. It's not what Paul says about the gospel. And it's not what Paul did in his ministry. If he believed that in, in baptism regeneration, he would be he would have been at Corinth saying, Oh, that I could baptize 2,000 more that they might know Christ. The man says, You know, I'm glad I only baptized about two of y'all because y'all are going crazy on this baptism thing. Mm. It's an outward symbol of an internal reality. It marks us off. It pictures the work that God has done in our life. It is good and right and sweet, and and it's an act of obedience to our Lord, but it is not salvation. It is not the means of salvation. It is an external picture of salvation. It's an outward work that pictures the internal spiritual transformation. And actually, Paul was baptized, right? We looked at that in chapter 9 of Acts. You remember that? So Ananias laid his hands on Paul, and, and then he was, he was filled with the Holy Spirit when Ananias laid his hands on him. And then um, after it says, and immediately there fell from his eyes the scales, right? And Ananias laid his hands on the Holy Spirit in Paul at that time, and Ananias informed him that his eyes would be healed, and then immediately the scales fell from his eyes. And it says he regained his sight, and what did he do after that? He got up, and he was baptized. So we see Paul following through with that symbol as uh, as intended for all Christians. But look at verse 17 there. Look what Paul says he does afterwards. So it happened that when I I returned to Jerusalem, now he's retelling this again. Okay, This is what happened. And I believe here there's, there's a question here about what time frame this is. I believe this is three years after his conversion, the first time he returned to Jerusalem. He returns twice. 
prior to this context we're in right now in terms of him speaking before the mob that was just about to kill him. So he's been there in the whole course of his three, uh, uh, um, three missionary journeys into the Gentile world. He's been back to Jerusalem twice prior to this. I believe in context here, he's referring to his very first visit back after his conversion, which was three years after he was in the wilderness there. Okay, so that's what I believe. Some people believe differently. It's not really. uh, It doesn't really matter in terms of what he's communicating here. But there is some uh, uh, difference there in what uh, and how people do the timeline. I'm under the belief that this is about three years after his conversion that he's speaking of here. So uh, just just um, for reference. But he says, when he returned to Jerusalem, they was praying in the temple and he fell into a trance. And he says, I saw him saying to me, now that's the Lord. So again, he's been placed into a supernatural trance. He's praying and the Lord meets with him and brings him to a a higher state of, of spiritual consciousness. Much like Peter. Remember when the Lord brought Peter uh, up there on the roof and brought Peter again to the same kind of, uh, of experience and gave him that dream concerning the Gentiles and uh, concerning uh, speaking to the Gentiles, but concerning uh, the animals and taking and eating same kind of situation here. And so he's in a trance like state induced by the Lord, if you will. And so the Lord is speaking to him and he says uh, there in verse 18, make haste. The Lord is telling Peter to make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now he's talking about the Jewish people. So he's saying the Jews are not going to accept what you say about me, Paul. You need to get out. They're your brethren. I know you love them, but they're not going to hear what you're saying. They hate you. So this is very unique here. And the Lord tells him to get out quickly. Listen to uh, Paul's response back to the Lord in this unique situation, this trance-like state. Verse 19, Paul says, I said back to the Lord, they themselves, speaking of the Jews here, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who, who believe in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, here we see Paul kind of, if you will, push back on the Lord, right? So the Lord's telling him, I have another calling for you, basically. I'm going to send you far away. You're going to be, now we know looking back, you're going to be the apostle of Christ to the Gentiles. You're going to be the the, the apostle that carries my gospel primarily. You're going to be the point man to the Gentile world. The gospel is going to the nations. It's always been intended to go to the nations. The gospel was made for the nations. And Paul, now you're going to be my point man in carrying it forth. You see Paul's heart, even here for the Jewish people. And he said, listen, you see, you see his reasoning? Look, they'll understand me because I have the perfect circumstance. I have the perfect situation. I have the perfect life experience to reach them. It's logical, right? I mean, isn't what Paul, Paul kind of pushes back a little more. Is that logical? Doesn't that make sense? And certainly his heart's there. So I don't know if you've had an experience like this in, in God's calling on your life and, and, and God's working in your life and in, in your context and your circumstances of life, but I, I know that uh, many Christians have. So let me try to encourage you here. Um, Paul gives us a really good example here. <clears throat> Now, he just lays his heart out before the Lord. He tells the Lord what he thinks here. Again, he doesn't know the future. God knows. We don't know the future. So we can't just rest everything on our circumstances or or our intuition or or our situations and and just, you know, know what we should do. In terms of if God is calling us to one particular uh, um, aspect of ministry, as God is calling us somewhere else. But here's what you do. 
lay your heart before the Lord. If you feel like Paul, like Paul felt here, if you have that, and say, as, as far as I know, my life experience, this or, or my, what I feel like I want to do for you, Lord, or, or certain people that I, I feel just burdened for, you tell them. Just this is beautiful. Just cry out to Him and say, "Lord, here's my heart. Here's my heart's desire. Here's what I. Here's what I want to do." Wouldn't this be great? I mean, I've thought about this. I've analyzed it. It seems very logical to me. Here's my heart. Do that. Do just like Paul did here. Don't uh, be afraid to do that. Lay those things out that are in your heart before the Lord. Be like Paul. Tell the Lord what's on your heart. And if we're here Wednesday night, if we don't know anything else, we know this. He'll listen, right? He'll listen. God is a God who hears and answers our prayers. That is glorious. Cry out to him because he will listen. He will listen to you. And follow me here. He'll take away your uncertainty. If God is calling you to something else specifically or to some other context or to some other, or, or, or just it's going to be shaped and moved and directed a little differently than what you thought might be best. I don't know how to put words to this. He'll take away your uncertainty there. And he'll show you his path for you. And he'll grant you grace to walk in it. He will. So lay your heart before him and trust him. I, in all of my feelings, and I know, you know, it's not, you're always taught in, in seminary, you don't want to make all the illustrations about you. That's not really helping me about somebody else. But I have a good one. It's me. So bear with me. I, I long to be a chaplain in the military. I feel like I was created to do it. All of my life experience, growing up with a, a, a wartime bed as a dad and all that stuff that goes with that. Um, all my background, everything, I just feel tailor-made for it. And what experience I've had in it is just that there's just, it, it abounds with opportunity. And as a citizen of this country, as a Christian in this country, in this context, in this particular climate, in this particular unique situation, I am opposed based on my Christian beliefs to this mandate, this, man, this vaccination mandate. And I cannot compromise. And I may not be able to minister as a chaplain in the military. And everything about my heart cries out to the Lord to let me do it. And if he doesn't, he will do in my life like he will in yours. He will listen to me. He will take away my uncertainty just as he will for you. And he'll show me his path and he'll grant me grace to walk in it. And he'll do exactly the same for you in every situation that you come up against where you feel this wrong. So don't blow past this little part of the narrative. It's huge. <clears throat> so Paul really helps us here because he just tells God what's on his heart and it's what we must do. And when you're afraid, when you're afraid to share your faith, watch out. And he will come to your aid and grant you grace to walk in his calling. So don't miss that. But God is going to call him far away. He's going to call him to another ministry, far from what Paul thinks was he was geared for or equipped to do. And then we see here Paul keeping his testimony centered on God. He's doing that. He points to God's work. He's making them focus on God's work of salvation in his life not his particular experience. And he's saying to them, you know what? I've been called to the Gentiles. Don't miss these either. He's saying, look, I had this thought. I, I had this, this, this feeling in my heart. 
I, I love the Jewish people. And God has saved me. But God has called me to the Gentiles. So what's Paul doing there that we need to do as well? Now, he kept that centered on God. So that's not now. That, that's, yes, it's what God is doing in his life. He's going to have another experience. But he's not focused on the experience. You see what he did? Because we have to do the exact same thing in our sharing of the gospel. God called me to carry the, to carry the, the gospel to the Gentiles. So if you're carrying the gospel in a very secular culture now, and it's not, a, it's not the uh, approved thing to do, culturally speaking, it's a little taboo these days, What's your response? God called me me to carry the gospel here. This is what God says about himself. This is what God says about the gospel. This is what God says about salvation. This is what God says that he is and will do as judge. This is what God says he is and will do or who he is and will do as savior. This is the reality of life. This is the message that I have been commanded by God to carry to you. This is what God has done in my life. So Paul says to them, if you're angry about me going to the Gentiles with the gospel, with our God, with giving the Gentiles access to or speaking about the Gentiles, not Paul giving it, but speaking about God granting himself uh, to the Gentiles, granting the, the Gentiles access to him, access to our God. If you have a problem with that, who are they supposed to take it up with? God. God. Paul's really good at that, and we can learn from him. This is what God has done in my life. I mean, Paul's just like, I don't have a choice. And they're railing away at you for, for, for uh, t- speaking of that, this outdated, uh, um, racist, sexist, outdated God. Then, you, you know, your answer, look, I don't even have a choice, man. This is what God has done in my life. This is what God has called me to do. This is who he is. And you are so far removed from the truth because he is your creator. He is not outdated. He is ever present. He is not wrong. He is perfect. He is not beholding to you. You are beholding to him. And he will judge you or he will save you. But you will not go without dealing with his authority over your life. This is what he's called me to. This is who he is. It's exactly what Paul does here. And so, verse 22, they hear that. It says, they listen to him. They were listening to him up to that point, right? Up to this statement. And then... They raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from this earth, for he should not even be allowed to live. So that brings us really to the response here of the crowd. Once he mentioned Gentile, that flipped the switch. So here's the crowd's reaction. They just go nuts, right? I mean, they just go into a frenzy. And they start, you know, they start dropping that their outer garment off. They're just they're grabbing anything they can, slinging the dust in the air. If they had rocks, I'm sure they would have thrown them at them. This is whatever they get their hands on. They're frantic, throwing whatever they can get. And it's symbolic. This is a symbolic display for them of what? Of their opposition to all that Paul is, all that Paul stands for. I mean, this is about as extreme a, a, a picture of opposition as you can see. Paul does not waver. Again, he keeps it God-centered. This is what God has called me to. If you have a problem with me taking the gospel to the Gentiles, you take it up with God. Don't blame me. You blame God. You deal with God. Always take them to God. Make them deal with God, not you. Paul's great at this. I can deal with God. And so they're going nuts here. Now, they're rejecting Paul, but again, by rejecting Paul, who are they really rejecting? They're rejecting God. The God that they claim, right? That's their God. And the same is true when we share the gospel. So why do they hate him? They hate him because they hate God. 
And you take God haters to God. You drop them off at God's doorstep. Not about how you emotionally feel or, or your background or what you're thinking at the moment or how this affects you. You drop them off at God's doorstep. They're really rejecting God. And why are they rejecting God? Because, oh, wait, wait, let me put it like this. Why are they rejecting Paul? They're ultimately rejecting God. But why, in their context, are they rejecting Paul? What are they upset about? What's this Jewish mob upset about? What's Paul done? He's taking the gospel to the Gentiles, right? How dare he take the Jewish God and make him accessible to the Gentiles? Now, what was Israel's command from God? What was Israel to do as a nation? Do you know? How were they to be a blessing to all the nations? There's, there's, there's a Messiah through Abraham. Yes. They were to carry God to the nations, right? So do you see the irony here? They're mad at Paul for doing exactly what God had commanded and created them to do. Now, that's the height of hypocrisy. And we're seeing it right here in this Jewish mob. Now, by application, I want you to think about this a little bit. They have just gone nuts over Paul doing what they're called to do. The God they were supposed to reveal to the nations, Paul is actually revealing to the nations, and they're mad about it. Now, I want you to see in context here, we have the same calling as Paul and Israel. We're to reveal the promised Messiah to the nations. That's our calling. We possess the gospel, and possessing the gospel is a spiritual blessing. Israel held in type and shadow a spiritual blessing. Now, we know uh, not all Israel is true Israel. We know there were genuine Old Testament believers awaiting the promised Messiah and true faith, and we know that part of geopolitical Israel was not. But the whole entity there had a responsibility. They had a blessing. Their blessing, all of Israel's blessing is not as full as ours because now we have Christ. <laughs> if we're here as genuine followers of Christ, we have the fullest blessing. We have the promised Messiah in full. He has come. Now, those who were in Old Testament Israel awaiting him in faith, when he, Christ comes in space and time, they're covered, they're set, they're sealed. They're in glory with their Lord. We await that glory. But we're looking back, have the full historical picture. We're holding Christ. We, and we also have the same responsibility that Paul is following through on here. And that these others are mad about Paul for following through on. We have the same. We are to carry the gospel. We have a the spiritual blessing among all mankind. We hold it. We possess it. We're followers of Christ. We hold the jewel of all humanity, the blessing of knowing Christ, and we're commanded to carry it, just as Old Testament Israel was commanded to be a blessing to the nations, and just revealing the one true God to them. Now we have that in space, and we have the same calling on our lives. So if we possess such a blessing, our hearts should long to impart you really have that blessing, your heart should long to impart it. Now, if our hearts do not, or we're at somewhere on that sliding scale, then we must pray. We must pray. The joy and the determination and, and, the, and the fire and the zeal of obeying and loving to obey our call to go forth and impart that spiritual blessing, the jewel of all existence to others around us. And we stay and we pray until God gives that back. Until our hearts ache over the lost around us enough to move us to communicate the gospel in our context. Whatever that is, I don't want to, again, I don't want to... Uh, um, block you in or, 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 or make it narrow with, with some kind of um, organized 
uh, uh, rituals. You've been given a context. I don't want to narrow it. I don't want to put. I don't, I don't want to lessen it to a day. This is a day that you go out and you communicate the gospel. You have a whole life. But if it's somewhere buried on your radar of all the things you have to get accomplished in your, we are off the mark in the worst way. If our hearts are not pulsing to carry this spiritual gift, this spiritual blessing of all spiritual blessings, then we are off kilter at best. Long to impart it. And if the longing is not there, may we pray until God grants it. So finally, as we wrap up here. So they don't know what to do with the crowd. And they're not really going to get answers from the crowd. And so they say, you know what? We need to just take Paul and get the truth from Paul. Because now what's going on? Everything was good. They were listening. And now he mentions Gentile and they go berserk. So what, what, what's the problem? What, what problem do they have with this guy? The only commander can think to do is what well, we can't interrogate the crowd, right? So we're going to interrogate Paul. Now, it's kind of gruesome, but scourging was sort of, that was normative. That was a normal way to interrogate prisoners in the day. We see that as, you know, that would be cool and unusual punishment today in our context. But that was kind of it. And again, it's the same thing that happened to Christ. So that's what we're talking about here. So it's the same kind of same concept. And they're going to bring Paul in and say, you know what? We'll just, we'll scourge him a little. And that'll get, that'll get the truth out of him. He'll speak then. He'll tell us what's up. Tell us what's going on. So in verse 33, as they were crying out and throwing off uh, their cloaks and tossing up the dust in the air, and then the command kind of breaks in there in verse 24, and he orders him to be brought. He orders Paul to be brought to the barracks. And he says, we need to examine him by scourging. That's a nice way to put it. Why? So we might find out the reason that they're shouting against him in this way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, so what they would do is they would strap the leather strap around him and they would stretch his back out across a pole and take his clothes off, his upper garment off, and it would stretch him out across a pole like this just so the back would be spread out so the lash would, would, would deepen just to inflict more pain. So that's that's what they're doing here. So they're they're putting they're positioning him for the scourging. And at that time, again, we don't know. Text doesn't give us why Paul didn't mention prior what they were to that point. And so Paul comes forth here, uh, and they're going to start examining through, through scourging. And as they're stressing him out, Paul says there in verse twenty-five to the centurion, the, the commander of a hundred soldiers, uh, that's overseeing the scourging. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And that was uh, the answer to that question is no, it's not. Actually, if you scourge one that was a Roman citizen, um, you could be penalized by death. It's a very serious matter here. So that changes the whole ballgame. So this is the bombshell that goes off and everything stops. And so now they're concerned. So in verse 26, the centurion heard this, and he went to the commander. Now, the commander there is going to be one who's over a 1,000 troops. So you've got a, a commander over uh, the centurion over 100 troops, and he goes to his superior. There's over a 1,000 troops who's overseeing the whole thing. Uh, this is Lysias in, in, in the historical context. We know who this guy is. And so he comes, and he says to him there, so tell me, are you a Roman? And Paul's answer is yes. And the commander answers there, and he says, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. In other words, you bribed somebody. You paid somebody off. You did it illegally. It was kind of accepted in the day, but still it wasn't legal. So he paid somebody off, and Paul tells him, well, you know, uh, I was actually born a citizen. A citizen wrong, which that kind of gives Paul a little more status, if you will. So he's concerned now. The commander's weary. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid. Why? Because he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. So now he feels a little compromised here. So again, now he's backed off. He's really trying to cover his tracks. So Rome's sort of protecting Paul now again. And what does he do in verse 30 there as we close out 
this portion. So that on the next day, wishing to know for certain why they had why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, he calls the Sanhedrin together. And so he gets the Jewish leaders. He said, okay, I have to get to the bottom of this, and I've really got to protect Paul and cover my tracks here. So I need to know what has transpired. So he's going to call the Sanhedrin together. And what you see here again is God's sovereignty at work. I want to leave you with this application. And all that we've seen Paul go through here, now, here again, Romans, Rome's only desire is empire, right? That's all they're thinking, conquest and empire. But look at God working sovereignly, even through Rome. Now, this is twice in one small context here where Rome has been the instrument, unbeknownst to Rome, the instrument of sparing Paul out. Two times now. And now he's going to have a platform here. And Rome has been, as we'll see in history, if I, if I can just... Just for a moment, speaking in a broader sense, we'll see when we look back in history, Rome was very friendly to the, to the Christians here at this time. So we hadn't really seen persecution coming to Christianity from Rome yet. And all the spreading of the gospel, the planting of churches that Paul was the point man for, really that came because of a very lenient, friendly Rome. So Rome was the means that God sovereignly used to plant a multitude of churches that may have been much more difficult to do had Rome not sort of had an overarching friendliness towards the concept of Christianity. You know, say, hey, this is, these are two sects on the same religion as far as Rome is concerned. We're not messing with them. It's not, it's, it's you know, we, we'll, we'll allow this. We're not in trouble by this. And even when the persecution comes, then where, where the churches kind of gather and become a little bit too large and too lumpy, in one spot, you'll see persecution come, and then you just see the dispersion of the church, and it goes even broader. So what I want to say here as we close out this text is all that has happened here, even in Rome, inter- intervening now twice on Paul's behalf, is a sovereign hand of God. So God has used men who were just about conquest, just about empire, and he has used them in this process, in this system, again, to spread his gospel as he sovereignly chooses, and to spare out his man as long as he intends for him to be spared out. Two times by wrong from the Jews. So it's a sovereign hand of God here. Rome saves Paul from the Jewish mob. That's pretty stunning. It's the sovereign work of God. The lust of empire is sparing out Christianity and spreading Christianity and planting churches and scattering churches when they need to be scattered. So I want you to see this as we close out here. It's all God appointed. Paul is God's man, and God will keep him, uh, serving him as an as appointment for the gospel until God is finished with him and calls him home. And the same is true in our context. This is your context. This is your climate. This is your circumstance. This is your situation that God has called you to. And he will keep you and protect you and guard you and minister you and nurture you along and hear you and guide you and direct you and and, and give you capacity to go where he has called you in obedience and minister in his name as long as he intends for you to minister in his name. And then he'll call you home. Same is true for you. And he'll use whatever means, whatever government, whatever establishment, whatever circumstance that he has right now in your current climate. He'll use it all to bring you along to carry his gospel. Your role is to respond in obedience. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning for this text. We thank you for Paul's uh, testimony that still is profoundly uh, um, uh, helpful for us today. In our current climate, we ask that you would help us too to uh, love the lost as we see Paul loving the lost, to, to trust you, to know that our hearts can cry out to you, uh, to uh, um, pour ourselves out before you with all our little thoughts and, and um, perspectives that we have on what you might be calling us to, how we might do this or that. May we lay on the for you, knowing that you are God who hears us and that you will shape us and mold us 
in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you, that is good for us, that is glorifying to you. We ask that where we are, um, where we are preoccupied or indifferent or frightened, uh, that you will strengthen us. We pray that where we are frail, you will give us boldness. Uh, where we are uncertain, you'll give us certainty. Uh, where we are lacking, you will fill us up with the Spirit of God, that we might walk in obedience, and that we uh, might learn well from Paul and one from one another. Know that you have called us to carry your gospel. We ask for strength to do that, and where our hearts uh, may uh, um, grow cold towards the loss around us, we pray that you would break us and humble us and uh, give us a burden for the loss around us, and where we are uh, feel inadequate and unprepared, and that you would quicken us and you would stand us up and you would gird us up and you would um, use us as your vessels and you would bear down your call upon our lives that we would not feel free to um, uh, fall prey to the winds and the um, trappings of this world around us, but that we would stay the course and um, trust you and uh, obey you and be light to this world and be gospel carriers. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.